I mean, what's my football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I will be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Is that legal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. It is Friday the 1st of December, but on the final day of November, Christmas came early, at least for Al Michaels, who finally got a good Thursday night football game to sit through. Uh, And the rest of us did too. The Dallas Cowboys and the Seattle Seahawks was an absolute banger of a Thursday night game for a change. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about drafts upcoming cornerback class and the return of the boo-boo breakdown with Vic Troja now that we're clear of Thanksgiving. And in order to do all that, we need to welcome in the great Trevor Sikama. How's it going, sir? Dude, not only uh, did Al get a good game, Kirk did as well, which is important for Kirk because the man's on the tail end of the college football season. So he's basically mm-hmm. been burning the candle at both ends for like the last four months. And his weekend, I think, is Thursday Night Football, which happened last night. And then the Pac-12 championship, which is tonight. And then he flies to go to game day the next morning. So this man has a truly unhinged weekend of sports. And if it started with an absolute stinker on Thursday Night Football, (laughs) it might have put the man's sanity over the brink at this point in the season. So I'm also happy for Kirk that he got to watch a good performance last night. That's true. It's, it's, you know, that that kind of the psychology of you need to start well otherwise the gate the, the day is going to be bad or, or you know you need to you need to get a hit in early otherwise you're not going to be in the game flow you know in a, in a football game I mean if Kurt had started that weekend with a, a standard Thursday night football slop fest and then had to go through the rest of his weekend that might have been that might have been a rough weekend we were talking about his sort of schedule though in the office up with uh with Mitch yesterday um you know you look at it and you're like man that guy He's doing a game, then he's hitting the plane, then he's going to do game day and then another game or whatever. It's like, yeah, I mean, it is. It's rough. But his traveling is not the same as our traveling, you know? Like, no, he doesn't have to spend hours in an airport, like in a horrible terminal, in a crappy chair with spotty Wi-Fi. You know, he's getting a limo to a private plane to another limo. Like the dog is lying across a private plane's couch. It's not the same, right? It, I could, I think I could live with that kind of traveling. The lack of being at home is yeah. uh, not ideal no matter what. Sure. But for you to not be at home, he's basically traveling about as well as uh, yeah. you possibly can. Because, he, yeah, he's... He's taking he's taking the PJ to the Thursday night football game. He's taking the PJ to the Friday night game, and then he's taking the PJ to the to the to the uh, game day set. So my man's my my man's racking up the miles, uh, but he's doing it in style. So you're right. There are worse ways to do his job. Mm. You wouldn't want to be like there's like the Kirk Herbstreet line of like once you get over it, then you're in a private jet for yeah. all of those flights. But right below the Kirk Herb Street line, you're doing all of that traveling while also still flying commercial. And that would, that's where you don't want to be. You never want to be just below the Herb Street line. Although doing it that way, you might get air miles. Like the one downside to Kurt's, I don't know that he's collecting air miles for that. You know, I don't think they have like a flyer program for the private jet. It's true. But then at that point, you're thinking, his contract's probably high enough to where he doesn't have to worry too much about the other flights that yeah. he's booking when it's not football season. So yeah, once you have enough zeros in the bank account, the uh, right the, the purpose of air miles has probably gone out the window at that point anyway. So that, that is right, a fair right. point. But but that's good on you that you're uh, that you're thinking of the rewards that your rewards guy. That's smart. Well, when you when you have this kind of income, you're thinking about all the ways of saving money and maximizing you know whatever. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, speaking of securing your family's financial future. There uh, we go. Look at you. Fabric by Gerber Life. Makes it quick, easy, and affordable to protect your family so you can get back to enjoying life. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. 
Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in just minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. That might be the smoothest transition I've ever done. I just stumbled right into it. As beautiful, you know, that that just, again, like Kirk and Al got, you're starting the weekend, you're starting to show off with a bang, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a good rest. It's going to be hour. a good one. So, are, am I correct in saying, in saying that this, was this the, the best Thursday night football game we've ever had? I, I don't know, ever, just because I can't recall all the Thursday night football games because mm. I try to burn them all from my memory. Exactly. But uh, no, this one was, it, it was phenomenal, right? It was back and forth. It was two exciting teams. It was teams that certainly both have playoff aspirations and it was really damn good quarterback play, right? I think that it's been up and down for the Seahawks and there's been some criticism of Geno Smith over the course of this season, but man, he showed up in a big way and the way that Geno Smith played last night, he deserved, I guess I'll use that word, even though it's a a loaded word, deserved to win that football game with all the huge throws that he had, how pinpoint accurate he was when his back was against the wall, third down pressure. I mean, that dude was absolutely lacing the football all over the field in such a fantastic manner. The only problem is he was going up against the hottest quarterback that we have in the NFL right now. And a guy who probably does not get enough love in the MVP conversation. I, I looked this up with Dak Prescott since week six, he is far and away the highest graded quarterback that we have in the NFL. He's got a 95 uh, passer passing grade in our system. And it's, it's, it's like 22 big time throws. It's like two turnover worthy plays. And even beyond some of the, the numbers and the data he passes the eye test with flying colors. I mean, the confidence that this guy has in the pocket is unmatched right now. You're watching him. He is so light on his feet. His hips are point. It's funny because everybody, everybody kind of poked fun at him when he was going through his, his uh, pregame hip drills, you know, like the, the one that, that went viral where he's just like trying to, you know, thrust to his, butt. but he's doing that in the pocket. And because of it, he's staying so light and flexible, and there's so much power and there's so much accuracy and rhythm on all of his passes. You know, whether it was first down, second down, third down, whatever it was, Prescott was up to the challenge. I I would argue that there is not a more confident quarterback right now than Dak Prescott and what we have seen from this Dallas Cowboys offense. And we saw it on display, and they put up 40 points last night against the Seahawks because of it. Yeah, he's playing spectacularly right now. The offense is cooking. I think this was a really big game for the team overall for his MVP um, candidacy uh, for their sort of reputation because this was the game that was different to all the other ones, right? Every other game they've had at home was against a bad team. They've got out to a lead early, and they've just run away with it. This one is a pretty good team um, who smacked them in the mouth first, right? Like the Seahawks got out to the early lead. Dallas had to stay in it from their point of view. Dallas elected to take the ball rather than defer the, the way everybody does, you know, at the start of games now, they elected to take the ball, which gave the Seahawks that opportunity, which is why you defer of getting the touchdown, or getting a score before and after the half. And they did. So Dallas had to live with this Seahawks team essentially putting them in spots that they had never been in this season and literally never been in. This was the first time they trailed at home this year. I mean, that's impressive just to say but also impressive yeah for them to get over it and i think that you know the way that dak is playing to me is trickling to the rest of the roster and you're just seeing so much confidence from everybody and you know like cd lamb believes he's the best wide receiver in the world right now deron bland certainly seems like he thinks he's going to get a touchdown every single week michael parsons believes he can get by any offensive lineman that's standing in front of him so the Cowboys are just playing so, so confidently right now. And you can tell they're getting the best out of their most talented players. And it allows you to continue to believe. And I think you're right. That was a really important part of what we saw from Dallas last night is that 
is this a team that can kind of roll with the punches? Because it felt like the schedule was pretty has been pretty soft to this point. I think they they flashed up the strength of schedule, and the Cowboys have one of the easiest strength of schedules, if I'm remembering that correctly, from the broadcast last night. But you get into a situation where you've got to be able to win games like this. And this can be a springboard. I guess that's the theme of this podcast of, you know, having something start strong and get you into something that's greater. You go down the rest of the regular season schedule and you're going to get into the postseason and you're going to be in dog fights like this. And I think unfairly the narrative with Dak Prescott has been, yeah, sure. He has a handful of games where he stuffs the stat sheet and he has some really great throws, but he can't beat the big opponents. You can get, you know, like that Eagles game that happened earlier this year, right? I mean, they were close. That game was close, but Philly ends up winning. And it's not a big victory that Dallas gets to take away. And I feel as though we have the best chance that we've ever had, which is saying something, uh, for Dak to be able to correctly show people how good he hit, how good he is and how good this Cowboys offense is. And I think it was a step in the they, like they they're in a, t- a weird situation, Dallas, because they've been absolutely annihilating bad teams, and then the 49ers embarrassed them, and they lost to the Eagles, and those are the two that they sort of need to bridge the gap to. This mm. was a stepping stone in that direction, right? This was the, the Seahawks aren't as good as the 49ers or the Eagles, but they're on the way. They're on that pathway, and now the next game Dallas has is against the Eagles. The next game after that is at Buffalo, and then at Miami, and then Detroit and Washington. So their schedule gets harder, and if they do legitimately want to be you know, one of the class of the NFC, a team that's going to the Super Bowl, they need to find a way of crossing that chasm that they've between the teams they're able to destroy and the teams that have been beating them regularly in the last year or so. And I think this is a an important stepping stone on that pathway, right? A, a way of bridging that gap is to go up against a good team who gave you several pretty big punches and then be able to rebound and get the win at the end of it anyway. Yeah, and I think that this could have been a game. And I'm not going to say they're about to, you know, like roll off four straight wins against you know, the Dolphins, the Eagles, the, the the Lions. I mean, they could fare well against that schedule, and they certainly have the ability to do that. But this game against Seattle could have been a overlooked game for them, right? They look further on their schedule, and this is a team that firmly has the Philadelphia Eagles in their sights, right? You play them close. They're the class of the NFC right now. They went to the Super Bowl last year. They're the number one overall seed right now, and so – it's it would have been realistic and even maybe in some ways understandable for them to look past this Thursday night football off game with the Seahawks and and their focus could have been on Philadelphia and the teams that kind of follow in that schedule and it wasn't and I think that they took care of business appropriately so and all the best teams in the NFL even even the ones that are putting up crazy points and know that they're going to win every single week they'll tell you that, yeah, you got to be able to respect the opponent that you have every single week, and it's the ones that lose sight of that that pick up a couple of extra losses throughout the regular season and then maybe aren't the team that they're supposed to be once you get to the postseason. And I feel as though Denver, sorry, Dallas, is in a really healthy place when it comes to having this little run of playoff-caliber teams that they're about to go up against and giving people a reason to believe that they're not only going to fare well against them but perhaps even best some of these teams. Um, it seems strange to say this, given the score at the end of the game, but it, it was a game where it felt like there was actually some pretty good defense being played as well. It wasn't just, you know, one of those games where there's a ton of points, it's all offense, there's bad defense left, right, and center. There was actually some good performances on defense and some interesting plays and key defensive plays that made the difference. Our guy, Ben Stockwell, um, said to me that it felt like a game where Uh, both defenses or both offenses rather um, sort of knew the rules to the the opposing defense which makes sense given the coaching connections but that that meant that the defensive coordinators the play callers were going like deep into the bag to find things that were still going to work because the opposing team you know knew how to beat the sort of standard stuff that we call so consequently you had this really interesting game of like defensive play calls and and what was getting dialed up and um, ultimately you know you can argue like there was a couple of big plays late in the game 
from Dallas's defense then end up being the difference, right? They get a, a stuff on fourth and short or fourth and one, whatever it was when they try to run Charbonnet. And then obviously that final game, uh, final play, fourth and two, where Michael Parsons is just in the backfield ruining the play, and that's that's game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, when I was watching, I, I agree with you. I didn't, I didn't come away with that one thinking, man, we're watching two really bad defenses. I thought we were just watching a game where the phrase "perfect offense is going to beat perfect defense" kind of came to life in a in a handful of ways for both teams. And I go back to just how well both of those quarterbacks were playing. I mean, Geno had three or four throws that I can remember off the top of my head where he's fading away, back foot sideline just in the basket straight over the defender where only his guy could get it. And whether it was Metcalf who had a huge game, uh, Lockett had a couple of big catches. Um, uh, Jackson Smith and Jigba did as well. And so it was like, no matter who he was thrown to shoot that dime to Noah fan was crazy. That, that might've been my favorite catch of the night, the way that he was able to go full extension and turn the body and still land with his back to the ground. So he didn't, you know, get any question what whatsoever whether or not he was going to have the ball or whether he was in control of that ball. I mean, that was incredible too. So to me, I agree with you. I, I didn't think that it was – there were obviously some defensive penalties that held teams back that they're going to want back, but that's kind of just playing the game. You, No coach is going to accept penalties, but as somebody who's watching, you kind of understand that's, that's what it's going to take, especially when you're going up against really good receivers like the Seahawks have, like the Cowboys have it's just going to get handsy. It's going to get physical and and you're probably going to have a couple of flags here and there. So I don't even look at that and say, yeah, it was like egregious. It was crazy. I didn't feel that way. I just felt like they were doing whatever they could to try to slow down these offenses. And when both of these teams and particularly both of these quarterbacks were operating at that kind of a level, you're going to see more flags because it's going to get more frustrating. You're going to have to go, well, what the hell am I supposed to do to stop this? And you start towing that line a little bit more and, and maybe that causes a couple more penalties. But to me, it was just, it wasn't that I thought that these defenses played poorly despite 41 and 35 points being given up. It was the fact that both these quarterbacks were just pretty much unstoppable last night. I felt like a lot of those penalties were pretty ticky-tack as well. Like I, I thought the officials were erring on the side of, you know, overly officious as opposed to letting them play a little bit, which was the only mm-hmm. real... The only real bad part of the game to me, like if the officials had taken a step back, just backed off a little bit, I thought that game would have been even better if they just hadn't called quite so many penalties. Um, the last thing I think we, we should talk about in the game, the Duran Bland performance was fascinating. He was getting blowtorched in the first half of that game. Uh, he And he overall, I mean, he's going to end up with a coverage grade in the 40s giving up eight catches for 169 yards, two touchdowns, seven first downs. Um, But he had a spectacular interception, which is a fantastic play. There were multiple plays where he was sort of reading the route um, and running it for the receiver. Like he beat Tyler Lockett to that play by essentially running the route before Lockett could and getting there ahead of him. Um, So it was a fascinating performance to me for a guy who has been, you know, on this record-setting pace, Still has a PFF coverage grade above 90 for the season, even including this game now. Um, But in this one game, was sort of trying to give it all away early in the game. Yeah, I I just looked it up really quick. First half, he had a coverage grade of 34.2. And second half, he had a coverage grade of 63.7. So just, it was a microcosm of what playing the position is all about. And Honestly, shout out and salute to Deron Bland for being able to play it this way. You're going to get beat playing corner. That's just the way that it is. You know, when we talk about scouting and things that you love about corners, um, a reason why I had Devon Witherspoon as my top corner last year, Devon Witherspoon, the second that he steps on the field, he believes that he is the baddest dude in the state. Like, he believes that he's the most talented football player in the in the in the county in the state in the country every time he steps onto a football field and laces him up you have to have that mentality to play corner because you know that there's going to be moments where that is not the case where somebody's going to catch a great pass against you he's going to moss you he's going to beat you with a great route and you have to be able the very next play to go i don't care i'm gonna get the next one doesn't matter and playing corner if you don't have that bounce back mentality and that overabundance of confidence to allow you to think that way even when Metcalf has taken one to the house on you and then he beats you for another touchdown and then 
Um, who was it? Was it Cooks? Who had the touchdown against? No, 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 no. That, I, I had that wrong. Who had the touchdown against Bland that got called back? Like there was another yeah. one that got like, oh, he got beat for the touchdown, and then it got called back on him. So there was even a touchdown that he gave up that didn't even show up on the on the scoreboard, and yet he's able to come back in the second half. Continue to play lockdown, continue to play confident, go get an interception. You mentioned sometimes run the routes even better than the receivers are running themselves. And to me, that's a sign of a great corner. You know, you don't want to be somebody who's so feast or famine like what we saw a couple of years ago with Trayvon Diggs, right? When he was breaking out initially, he was getting all these interceptions, but the variance of how boom or bust he was, it was like, man, okay you're simply not going to get enough interceptions or forcing completions to make up for how many yards and how many touchdowns you are giving up. Now he is a much more controlled corner with some of the, with, with those ball skills still there. And Deron Bland to me is kind of in that same light where right now it's very high variance, but to me, you will certainly take that given how good he is at the takeaway mentality because you're hoping, hey, next year, the year after that, he's only going to be a more steady and lockdown player where he'll still have those ball skills to him where those opportunities present themselves. He can go and get it. So, yeah, yeah, shout out to him. Unbelievable game. Love the bounce back mentality. And and that was one of my takeaways as well. At the end of the game, I was like, damn, that's what corner. Well, I don't want to say that's what corner is all about because some guys can just have a very quiet night and that's what you want too. But being able to have that bounce back confidence is is such a key part in sticking around this league for a long time at that position. Yeah, Jackson Smith and Jigba had that touchdown just before half that, yes. that ends up getting turned overturned and becomes a, a, a pass interference penalty instead, but could easily have been the third touchdown against him in that game. Um, another player I, I want to give credit to for a bounce back performance was Reek Woolen, who got kind of bench, sat down with a shoulder injury in the last game. He had a great game, a couple of uh, forced incompletions here. But that uh, lets us, we're going to transition into cornerbacks in the draft. Uh, but first, before we do that, we got to talk about prize picks. And the, the prize picks lineup, it's been getting kind of passed around the group, you know. Tyler took a swing at him. They didn't go that well. Tyler gave him over to Eli. Also didn't go that well. But look, here are Eli's prize picks for this week. We've got Jared Goff, more than 260.5 yards. We've got Christian McCaffrey going for more than 0.5 rushing touchdowns. And we have Rasheed Rice, the new wide receiver one in Kansas City, going for more than 47.5 receiving yards. So that's... uh, Eli's second swing at a prize picks lineup. We will see how he does this time around. Um, with prize picks, of course, you can also do all sorts of other things, such as playing with some of prize picks' favorite players like rapper Meek Mill and comedian Andy Schultz. You can now find community plays under the promos tab of the app uh, to view entries from some of the biggest names in the prize picks community each week. Price Picks also offers a reboot policy so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. For football and basketball games, if you have a player that exits the game in the first half and does not return in the second, that player is rebooted. Price Picks is the only daily fantasy sports platform with an injury insurance policy. Go to pricepicks.com slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Again, that's pricepicks.com slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to 100 bucks. All right. Uh, I asked you yesterday, as is the way we do this, give me a few names, the top corners in this year's draft class, so that I can at least have a quick cursory scan of their tape and we can discuss. And you gave me three names. Uh, other people pitched in more names that you can mention. I looked at the three names and I have come to the conclusion that this is not a good cornerback class. <laughs> do you agree? Wow. Wow. Uh I Okay, I would I would I would definitely push back on that. That not being good. All right, talk talk to me about it. So the three guys that I gave you to watch, who did you like the most? And what just didn't you like about the three overall? Okay, so the three names you gave me. You gave me Kool-Aid McKinnistry yeah. from Alabama. You gave me mm-hmm. Cooper do we decide this is DeGene from DeGene, Iowa? Correct. Yes. And Nate Wiggins from Clemson. Uh, mm. Of the three, I think Nate Wiggins is the best of that trio. Uh, okay. I figured that you would say that. Right. 
Um, however, I don't think any of them are even in the same vicinity as Devin Witherspoon last year or, you know, Sauce Gardner the year before. I mean, I think they are a notable step down from that type of elite cornerback prospect. Um, fair? I would not draft these guys in the top 10 like I would have right. been fine with drafting Patrick Sertan the second, Sauce Gardner, Devon Witherspoon, maybe even Christian Gonzalez. Like, yes, I I I like those guys as potential top 10 picks more than I like these other players, but I don't think that makes them bad. It just no. means that we don't have like a crown jewel top 10 kind of a corner. Right. But there's, you know, there's there's a this is a nuanced show, Trev. There's a difference between there's a, Sure, there's yeah, a yeah, they stink. I wouldn't draft any corners, none of them. Zero. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, my my initial, my take essentially was like, if this is the best this draft class has to offer, this is not a strong draft class for cornerbacks. Now, maybe it's deep as hell, right? And there's a million guys at this kind of mm -hmm. level. But the point being, there's nobody anywhere near, you know, Devon Witherspoon, Sauce Gardner, um, Patrick Sertan, as you said, like th those guys. Like Nate Wiggins actually reminded me a little bit of Christian Gonzalez. And this is in order to sort of get this as a, as a level set, as a context thing of what I'm saying, I didn't have Gonzalez as my number one corner. I actually didn't like Gonzalez that much. I had him much lower down than almost everybody else because mm -hmm. as much as he was an incredibly fluid athlete, and I may be wrong about this, by the way, like he looked fantastic in the limited stuff we saw from him before he got injured, um, but like incredibly fluid athlete, like prototypical size, speed, all that kind of stuff, but wasn't actually that great at stopping people catching the football, which is a fairly fundamental part of the job as a cornerback. Uh, he then goes to New England, where it's a great landing spot for him. You know, Bill Belichick, coached up, defense, all that kind of stuff. So maybe he becomes the player that he never quite was in college. But Nate Wiggins reminded me quite a bit of Gonzalez in terms of, you know, incredible movement, fluidity, but he's way more lightweight than, than Gonzalez was. Like, he doesn't – he's – Mm -hmm. like missing 20 pounds or whatever versus Gonzalez. And that shows up a bit. But the same kind of thing in that he just allows the guy to catch the ball way more than he should for how kind of in close attendance he is in a lot of these uh, coverage reps. So Wiggins is somebody who caught my eye very early when he was starting at Clemson, like before he was draft eligible. I think that he was playing as a true freshman. And I remember watching reps where I was like, okay, who's that guy? Because he is different. And, you know, when you see players, you know, best plays that just kind of pop out, it's very different than watching every single one of their plays and scouting them for an evaluation. So he goes through as an underclassman and going into summer scouting a couple of months ago during the summer, I liked the ball skills, I like the movement skills. I think he is really explosive. He's really fluid. I like the length. He's 6'1", 6'2", something like that. But he is. He's got a very slender build. And for some guys, that's okay. You can, you can have some low body weight players who can still survive, especially at the cornerback position. But for him, it really showed up in contested catch situations, in dealing with press coverage at the line scrimmage, and then, of course, like in run defense, like in tackling. He... Played pretty well to start the year, and then he got banged up a little bit. He didn't miss as much time as I thought he was going to miss, and then he kind of comes back from that injury, gets acclimated, gets closer to 100%, and I feel like as of late, second half of the season, he's been playing really, really well. And to me, that's a really great sign of, and that includes like the strength profiles of his game. Like I, I've watched a couple of his games since he came back from injury, and I'm like, whoa, okay, you're playing with – a lot more fire, a lot more strength. You're more willing as a run defender, even though he definitely, I think, has to get stronger and add more weight. To me, I think a lot of people that really like Nate Wiggins as potentially CB1 as a potential top 15 pick, see him for what he was last year, what he was at the beginning of the year, and now what he has also been after injury. And through those three phases of of his development, the arrow has continued to point up. Like he continues to get better to where, you know, you kind of watch him right now and you go, this guy's still an incomplete prospect, right? I mean, like there are times when he doesn't have ball awareness that he needs to, you know, he's not really locking down the other receiver. There are flashes of it, but it's not nearly as consistent as I would say that it is for like Cooley McKintree, but those are different type of athletes. Um, and so I think the alluring part of Wiggins and why people are really in on him right now 
and I have him in the top 22, is because I think he's getting better. He continually gets better. And to me, when you pair the length, uh, the fluidity, the movement skills, and then the ball skills as well, because Wiggins has a decent amount of forcing completions, but last year he had like three or four dropped interceptions that he could have hauled in. It's like, dude, man, if you haul that in, like we're talking about an, a, a high, high-impact player. So I think that that's still there for him as well. So to me, he's one of the younger players in this class. The arrow is pointing up. He's only getting better. That's why I think you see a lot of people maybe believe in him more than the tape says right now for what it can be as a as a future pro. Yeah, I think he actually – I think he reads the game the quickest of the three guys that – that I looked at um, like he actually arrives too soon at the ball. And a lot of these, uh, a lot of these targets, a lot of these uh, past situations, like, which is, I mean, obviously some of those are penalties, but like, I think that fundamentally is a good thing. If you're reading it early enough that you're actually arriving before the ball, um, that's probably a positive in terms of your game relative to a guy who's a tick late every single time. Yes. Um, even in, you know, when the, the ball arrives, you're not even going to make the tackle, let alone contest the catch. So, yeah, and I, I also – he's lightweight. It shows up on tape sometimes, but I don't think he's tapped out in terms of how big he can get. Like, he looks like he can – No, I don't either. Because, yeah. like, you know, Emmanuel Forbes, incredibly lightweight. It, it showed up on tape sometimes as well. And I don't know how much bigger that guy can get. Like, you're looking at him and saying, this might be it. Um, Wiggins, I think, has the capacity to add some weight, and if he does – he can get himself into that Christian Gonzalez kind of realm of the, the sort of size, uh, athletic profile, all that kind of thing. Let's talk about Kool-Aid McKinnistry because he might be the most interesting one to me. I know a lot of people love this guy. I, I didn't love his tape at all, actually. Oh, okay. So you tell me what you didn't love about it. Like what was <laughs> – so? because there – because there are, there are areas in his game that I don't think are like superstar level, but I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. So I'll, I'll, in our, getting back to the theme of this show, right? It started badly, which didn't help, right? It was the first couple of weeks were rough and I'm immediately taken against him from that. It did improve. So, you know, credit him for bouncing back and getting in that. Um, unlike uh, Wiggins, McKinnistry is a tick late to reading almost everything I felt. Like when he's got a, diagnose the play when he's got to work a route combination as opposed to just one guy one-on-one, -on -one, even when he's got to read one guy just on a release package, right? Is he going to run the fade? Is he going to run the slant? It, it felt like he's a tick late consistently and is behind a lot of these uh, passes, is behind a lot of these targets, is behind a lot of the plays. And that, again, was that was a little bit Gonzalez like last year uh, at Oregon in contrast to R Witherspoon, who was always ahead of the play. Um, I think he's definitely way better in man coverage than he is in zone coverage. And the thing mm -hmm. that he does really well is um, running with a receiver down the sideline, right? That mm -hmm. classic turn to the outside, get your body on him, lean on him, be able to maintain position on the corner or on the receiver and turn back and locate the football. He does that really well. And that's, that's definitely an important skill set. And it's a difficult one. Like that's, one of the hardest things as a cornerback to be able to do, not a lot of quarters can do that well. That is his sort of superpower. That's the thing he does better than anybody else. Um, and he's patient doing that as well. It doesn't look like it. It's there's not a lot of effort involved in it for him. So that's a huge thing in his favor. But I didn't love the way he read the game in zone. I think for a guy whose man coverage is a skill set, he was too easy to sort of shake with a – uh, you know, like a misdirection thing. I'm going to show you this thing and then go in the other direction. Like he was way too easy to separate from in that direction. I don't know. I just, I, I think there's a lot of rough tape on his reel. I think, so to your, what you said about his strength, I agree completely. And that, that holds a lot of weight for me. Being able to play a press man style where, you are going to have your back to the ball quite a bit. And for him to be as comfortable as he is with his back to the ball and also to have the timing that he does, because he has some of the most forced incompletions in the country over the last two years. The only player in the FBS who has more forced incompletions than he does is Quignon Mitchell, who we didn't watch for this, but he is also having another fantastic year, the cornerback from Toledo. Um, Steve actually shouted him out in our little Slack channel. He was yeah. like, watch him. And I was like, yeah, he would be the next guy that I would want you to watch. So, 
he, Mitchell has the most forced incompletions. I think he's got like 34 in the last two years, a lot. And then McKinstry has 27, which is second most in the FBS. And I think that's because he played receiver in high school as well as corner. And so he understands the receiver's body language, mentality, and timing of when the ball is probably going to come. You know, like the things that you do, you know, the eyes, people talk about like watching the eyes and the eyes get big, but it's more than that. It's kind of the nuance of how the body works when the arms are coming up, you know, the timing of how far we are deep down the field. So he's got a really great feel for when the ball is coming and being able to play with his back to the ball, which I think is incredibly valuable. So I agree with you there. I share in your concern with a little bit of the lack of anticipation and the little bit of just overall elite athlete of playing corner. And it's not great when you have those concerns, but the concerns aren't, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I don't feel as though they're detrimental when I watch him. It's like, okay, I wish you recognize this a little bit more. Maybe I wish you had a little bit more recovery speed here. Cause that's also why I feel like his interception numbers are low. Cause he is just a tick slow to see something. But to me, it's not a, I don't see it as much of a, a fatal flaw as you do, at least from what I have seen from him um, this year and last year. So instead, I just see a guy who, yeah, maybe he's not going to be a big turnover machine for you, um, but he's just going to be a really solid cover corner. And I feel like his, I feel like his floor in the league is like a really solid CB two. And if that's your floor for a position that has so much variance, to me, knowing how many corners NFL teams need right now that's that also holds a lot of value for me and because the NFL draft it's a game of risk right you're taking a chance you're taking a bet on a guy and to me to have a player who has as high of a floor as McKinstry does for the position that he plays that holds a lot of value in my book yeah I mean one of the notes I've written down is like I I think his recovery speed and angles and things are really good. Like if he gets out of position, he's consistently getting back in position pretty quickly and not and efficiently. Like takes the right angle to the place he's going to need to get to given the the space that he's opened up. I just wish he didn't need to use it as much. Like if he was if he read that initial move better and was in position to live with the move all the way along cuz in like in college quarterbacks are slow right they're not they don't read what happened immediately they don't fire the ball in the nfl if you give up that two yards of separation on the break the ball's there and your your recovery speed is now not to contest the catch it's to like prevent yards after the catch it's to stop Mm -hmm. him before he runs 25 yards away from you that is a little bit of a concern to me for him i don't see it as as much of a detrimental concern as you do all right um, let's move on to uh, Cooper DeGene from Iowa. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I, he's, you want to go or you want me to go? Well, I mean, you know, we're, we're I, I talked to you before we went on. It's like second. Do you think he's a corner or safety? So I don't think he's as good as Riley Moss was coming out of the same defense a year ago. <laughs> oh, wow. And Moss was, when did Moss go? Was Moss a fourth rounder? Yeah, not high. Yeah, but yeah, but Desheen's so much bigger and taller and stronger than Moss is. Is he? And he's and he's he might be just as athletic. I mean, Riley Moss is a crazy athlete, so maybe not just as athletic, but his weight adjusted athleticism is going to be way better than Moss's was. They're like lifts listed in a similar range, aren't they? Riley Moss was the third round pick. Okay, so Riley Moss is listed at six one one ninety four. Cooper DeGene is listed at six one two zero seven. So he's got ten. Pounds All right. On. So he's got. So he's got like ten, like 13. ten plus pounds on. Yeah. I mean, and I still think he's just as good of an athlete. He's good to I me. Think, that matters as a defensive. Player. I think he's a solid athlete. I don't think his feet are as good as Riley Moss's were. Like so, one of the things that impressed so he me. He has. He has a little bit heavier feet, and right. that's the one that that is the biggest reservation that I have with him playing outside corner because he played outside corner for Iowa for the last two years. Some people project him as safety, and I also wouldn't mind him at safety like if you told me that this guy was going to be able to play a little bit of the Antoine Winfield Jr. role where he could play free safety primarily he could come in the slot and play up against bigger wide receivers because he got the size or you could kind of like bring him down the slot and you could let him blitz off of the edge because he has the size I think to be able to do that hold up at the NFL level that's a role that I could envision for him having a lot of success because he's also 
I think he's got great instincts. I think the way that he reads the field, how he reads space, they play him they play him in off coverage a lot. Mm. And when you see a guy who is six foot one, two hundred and seven pounds as a corner, you kind of want to see what he can do in press, right? You want to see him go up right. against these bigger receivers. Hey, go up and press coverage and play man against the X. And they just don't ask him to do it very often. Yeah. They play a lot of off cover three and off quarters um, at Iowa. So we just didn't get to see a lot from him there. And in those instances where he had to like turn and run pretty quickly, yeah, his feet are a little slow off the jump, but I think he's really explosive and has good top speed. And because of that, you see great recovery and it doesn't often get him burned. Now, would it at the NFL level? Yeah, maybe that's a question there. And Ultimately, that's why I think people have the debate of, is this guy a safety or is this guy a corner? But the way that he reads space, the ball skills that he has, and then how he turns into such a playmaker once he gets his hand on the ball, so valuable to me. I, I think he's just one of straight up one of the best playmakers that we have in this draft class. And so that's why I wanted you to watch him specifically for these three. Yeah, he would be really interesting at safety. It is, it's a frustrating defense, that Iowa defense, in terms of projecting cornerback to the next level because it is so sort of protected in terms of what they ask those guys to do. Um, Riley Moss was interesting to me because I actually really liked him as a corner. But his biggest flaw was he just kept sort of mistiming his con his contested uh, attempt at the catch point. And like he was right there, he would jump, he would contest, and somehow the ball would get by him. Like as he, he was like, he would turn to look for the ball right as it sailed past his head. And he somehow mm. did this so many times that you're like, it feels like every single one of these is just bad luck. But can you have 20 plays that are bad luck like this in, in, a, in one tape reel? Like that right. seems to suggest a, uh, a consistent problem with your game as opposed to somehow 20 times in a row you timed your look for the exact wrong moment and the ball went by your head. DeGene doesn't have that. Like he actually contests no. well at the catch point. He times it well. So if that – but I thought Moss had better feet than he did. I thought Moss's change of direction and short area stuff was better. But DeGene is actually really good. His best plays come in that cover three look – where he has that sort of sideways shuffle Richard Sherman technique that they run mm -hmm. in Alabama a lot as well and that Sherman did in, in Seattle for years. He has some really nice reps of that on tape where, you know, he's, he's uh, varying his pace. He's pr uh, protecting the kind of underneath stuff in case the receiver breaks it off. And then when he finally takes a vertical, he just glides with him and, and then does contest it at the catch point, which again yep. plays into that kind of – that's a very similar skill set to – some safety roles. I would definitely right. I would definitely be intrigued in seeing him as a free safety as well. So that was going to be my question for you is is kind of like the way that you view him because I think he can play outside corner, but there's a lot more of a projection than you want cuz you could play him you you can play him in cover 3 systems, but how many teams in the NFL are just playing like pure cover 3 now? Right. There's not a lot. So you're, you're going to have to ask him to do a lot more than that. Does he have the footwork to do that? I think he does. So I still have him at corner. But the month of December is going to be pretty big for me and for uh, the PFF Big Board. We're going to go through a lot of different data points and a lot of different film now that the regular season is done. A lot of these guys are going to opt out of the bowl games if they're not in the college football playoff. So the month of December is a big like film recheck month. And I'll kind of look at him with the question in mind like okay where do you honestly project him to be the most successful and it it might be at safety because i have him in both rankings right now right. and i like him in both but i might end up just saying like all right if you if you start him in outside corner you can but his best role in the nfl is probably going to be a safety so that that's that's a question that i wanted to hear you answer honestly when i threw his name out there i i feel like He's somebody, I think you're just going to have an incomplete evaluation on him until you get him to do some of those things, right? Like you're not going to see enough tape yeah. of uh, of his at Iowa of like what happens when you're playing press man in tight spaces, you know, what does it look like then? I don't know if you and, and there are And there are reps, right? Like we have, yeah. we have ways to like watch all of those press coverage reps and I have watched a handful of them, but at the same time, it's just not enough. You look at some of those things and you go, you're not asked to do it a lot. Right. So there's not a lot of training here. There's not a lot of repetition here. So 
I'm not really gaining a lot by even watching this because I kind of have the same takeaways. It's like, all right, well, you clearly just don't have a lot of practice doing this, but is it the fact that you don't have a lot of practice and you're going to get better at it? Are the feet going to get a little bit lighter or is it just kind of how your footwork is? Are you a little bit heavier feet? Yeah. Footed for and a corner? Like if he goes to a bowl game, uh, uh, not a bowl game, uh, an all-star game, you know, maybe a week of reps would get him would get you some information on that. Or maybe the first time an NFL team is going to have like a real knowledge of whether he's, he's going to be that guy or you're going to move him to safety is when you get him in training mm-hmm. camp and just spend the first week watching him do those reps, right? And then say, okay, that's probably not going to work, but don't worry, we like him at safety anyway. We drafted him with this in mind. I, I feel like he's that type of player. You, you're not going to know whether he can actually do that specific thing. So you're not you're not going to be drafting him solely as that unless you get more mm-hmm. evidence somewhere down the line, whether it's a week of practices at an all star game or something else. I would be key. I'd love to see it. All right. Talk to me about the other couple of names in this class that I didn't get to, but that you've seen. What does the rest of this class look like? How deep is it? Who are the next names? I think it's I think it's a really deep class. For, first and foremost, I, th- I think that like there's just a lot of really good slot corner dudes. Like there's a handful of players that can be really good slot corners. JD Barron from Texas, Javon Bullard from Georgia, uh, Max Melton from Rutgers, Mike Sanders still from Michigan. There's just, I think Malachi Moore from Alabama, Chow Smith Wade from, from Washington state. Like there's, this is a really good class in my opinion, if you need a nickel corner. Now, of course you're not drafting a nickel, you know, in the, first round or anything but there's going to be plenty of opportunity i think maybe even late second round third round fourth round something like that for you to get a starting caliber nickel cornerback which we know in the nfl today is huge so i think that there's some really good specific slot corner guys that are in this class with them you got a handful of other guys that are going to make this really interesting a lot of people love terry arnold and his athleticism uh from alabama he's the guy who's opposite kool-aid mckintry you didn't love mckintry so i've I, kind of think that you'll probably like Arnold better just because if you didn't look at McKinstry and his style and see the glass half full approach to it, you're probably going to, you're probably going to go for the guy who's been a little bit more instinctive on the ball this year and had a little bit more ball production this year. So Terry on Arnold's one of them. I mentioned Quinion Mitchell from Toledo. He's had an elite coverage grade over the last two years. Denzel Burke's playing pretty well for Ohio state. Although I wouldn't put him in that second, first or second tier of corners. Um, TJ Tampa from Iowa State, six foot two, 210 pounds. I mean, like if you were looking for a big long corner, like he's your dude. Now, fresh, he's kind of frustrating too because he's the same thing. Really great measurables for a press man corner. Don't play him in press man a lot. Like they just keep him off. And I think that has developed his instincts and his spacing, which has helped. But he's somebody who I think needs a couple more looks as well. Kamari Laster, I like from Georgia. The disappointing ones this year, still like Josh Newton from TCU. He's a guy who started at number five in my cornerback rankings going into the year. He struggled, been a little up and down, still like his ability. I still have him in my top 10 with cornerbacks. The most disappointing player this year, no doubt about it, has been Kalen King, Kalen King, the Penn State corner. Mm. Last year, King had a single coverage, coverage grade of 91.3, which is nuts. Like in, op- in, in situations where he was told, go shut down the other team's wide receiver. He had an elite coverage grade. That is so, so difficult to do. He's got really good athleticism. He's got fluid hips. He's got, shoot, last year, he certainly showed the closest to Devon Witherspoon's click and close type of ability and impact when it came to changing direction. And this year, I think his coverage grade's in like the 50s. I mean, he had a terrible day against Marvin Harrison Jr., which, okay, it's Marvin Harrison Jr., I get it, but you were once considered a top 20 overall pick at corner. You got to fare better than you did against Marvin Harrison Jr. You got to win some reps, and I don't feel like you won any reps there. He's just not playing with... I mean, his anticipation is off. His confidence is low. He's second-guessing himself. He's hesitating, and because of that, he's given up a ton of yards, given up a ton of catches, and he's just not even the same player right now. So he, to me, I don't even know if he's going to declare at this point, but you remember, I, I use this example quite a bit because it's the easiest one to for people to recognize, but 
you remember when AJ Terrell had that elite coverage season? I think it was like his first year in the league with the Falcons. Yeah. And then the next year he had a coverage grade of like 58. And it was like, okay, what do we do with this dude? It's the same exact situation with Kalen King where truly elite coverage grade two years ago or last year. And then this year, I mean, it's been basically every team's kind of like had their way with him. And I, I don't really understand how we got to this point, but he is somebody who I think a lot of people will recognize the name because of how high we had him graded preseason, but he's he's taking a pretty big dip. Yeah, I mean, people were using him as as like almost a stick to beat Joey Porter Jr. with last year, right? And in his sort of, they were like, well, he's not even the best corner on Penn State. Like, Kalen King is right. better. So, like, no, Joey Porter's not a top corner. Like, he's he's the second best guy in his own team. And Kalen King went into the season as, as the expectations were he was going to take – you know, the next step and be one of the top corners in the class. And apparently it hasn't happened at all. <laughs> nope, it has not. It has not. All right. So that that's our uh, little review, our little glimpse into the the upcoming cornerback class of the NFL draft. Obviously, our in-season uh, overview of it. And we'll return to that once we get to the offseason and we get into draft swing in its full entirety. And I actually get to watch more than just a cursory glance of all these guys. Uh, but anyway, that's our little view of this. We're going to kick over now to uh, Vic Troja for the Boo Boo Breakdown. Okay, back after our Thanksgiving break is the Boo Boo Breakdown, our injury roundup with our guy Vic Troja. How is it going, Vic? Good, Sam. How are you doing? Not bad. Good holiday? Oh, it was awesome. It was uh Nice to get a little break and splurge on some calories. So. Yeah. Um, so the big thing I want to talk to you about today is coming out of last week's games, we had another another Achilles injury on MetLife turf. Um, right. And that had, you know, some Miami Dolphins players talking about it. Javon Holland, I think, was the latest guy to sort of trash that MetLife turf. Um, and I, I don't want to get too far into just trashing the MetLife turf, but I was curious whether, because that was one where you had a great slow-mo replay of exactly what happened, right? Mm -hmm. And it was nothing. He just pushed off, you know, to start his pass rush, and his Achilles just snapped, right? Yep. Um, does Can turf affect that? Because as far as I could tell, like, there was no slip or anything. You know, there was no obvious give in right. the turf. So the only thing that can possibly have affected it is like the hardness of the turf, how much it gives, how much padding is underneath it relative to grass or, you know, a different surface or whatever. Right. But if that's the case, I mean, does that kind of thing affect Achilles injuries or Achilles likelihoods? And if that's the case, does like basketball have a way higher Achilles tear rate than football? Because, you know, it's hardcore. Yeah, I, I think the terminology that is universally used by NFL players on turf is sticky. The word sticky they feel like they they can't get that give their cleat sticks um you and i after talking a little bit i think are on the same page where i look at a play like jalen phillips or something like that and you don't see why his achilles would have snapped on that given just a normal planting of his back foot or like a cam acres when he stepped backward it looked like a routine right. play I have that, a, that feels like the kind of play where, I mean, there are times where you're not going to want your cleat to get stuck in the turf, right? right? Where your leg is going in a weird direction, the, the fact that it sticks is bad. That is, seems like a, an instance where you actually want your foot to be rock solid. Like the less it moves, the more it's firing force through the rest of you, which is the whole point in pushing off to, you know, to explode into your first step. Yep. And I, I, I might be on the opposite side of a lot of medical professionals when it comes to this, but I have a hard time sitting there pointing out an injury like those two that we just talked about saying that's the turf's fault. It more seems like if it was going to happen there, it was going to, it was bound to happen. And I think that it's just the way that his foot planted and the way that the pressure went through his Achilles tendon, not because his foot was planted into turf. It was just that angle, that mechanism. That's how it, that's, that's how his Achilles popped. But I do also think that the turf does play a significant role in lower extremity non-contact injuries versus grass. I think that it's just the, the biggest debate is like, what can you blame on turf versus right. what is just gonna be somebody's physiological response to the way they took off out of their you know three-point stance? Does, um, 
Like, does a sport like basketball have a higher instance in Achilles injuries? Like, is the actual hardness of whatever it is you're pushing off relevant to whether or not your Achilles is just going to tap out one day? Yes, it, it does. But again, the ways that players take off in like basketball is nothing like what you have the stop and start of football, where it's from zero to 100 in a five yard sprint. So the role that the Achilles takes in a basketball is a little bit different. I mean, obviously the surface itself is way harder, right. but the role that the Achilles plays in basketball is not as um, is not as used for like a sudden 100% tension load versus where basketball, a lot of times Achilles injuries come when somebody lands and they land awkwardly and that pressure goes down through their foot. I would imagine just in relative terms as well, the body types in basketball are less uh, harsh on something like your Achilles. Like, you know, some of these football players are loading like a disproportionate volume of muscle weight through that that same tendon as opposed to a basketball player who are, you know, shack aside all like fairly thin, live, you know, in proportion human beings, even if they're massive, right? right? Like they're 6'8", but they're 6'8 and skinny as opposed to... Six eight and loaded with two hundred ninety pounds of muscle, and without you know squatting five hundred pounds versus squatting a hundred pounds, like right. there's there's a lot of different variables that go into it. I mean, that being said, though, I don't I don't look at like a, a football player like who tears his ACL or his Achilles tendon on turf to sit there and say, well, it's because of all these factors of how much how strong they are and how much they weigh. I do think that there is a role that just the surface level the or the the playing surface makes a big difference for these players. I mean, they continuously report on how they want to play on grass field. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, and obviously with you being an ex-athlete and myself, like I feel a difference. I know a difference between turf and grass um, and just the toll it takes on your body. So I understand where the players are coming from here. Yeah, I mean, turf, every turf I've played on feels horrible. (laughs) (laughs) If I, given the choice, you would obviously want to play on grass. Now, I think grass has negatives as well Mm -hmm. like there are turf surfaces where simply cutting and stuff feels way better because you can stick your foot in the ground it will stick and you can make as hard a cut as you want right and know that it's going to be like your foot is going to be there whereas in grass there are times where you stick your foot in the grass and it's just like slips right out from underneath you and you see that like half the anytime there's a game on grass you see just constant slipping players falling like players not being able to keep their footing so Mm -hmm. Like there's a downside to it as well, but it does feel way better just in terms of impact and like the wear and tear that you would get off a of grass surface. Well, like I, I can never figure out how, I mean, forget like they're way better now than they used to be, but you ever see those games of kind of old school AstroTurf where it's like a carpet on concrete? Yeah. I mean, how players ever played on that stuff is insane. It's like rubber on a slab of concrete. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, how you could ever like <laughs> be driven into that and then get up and you know play the next down or whatever is absolutely insane yeah yeah and uh like then you know it kind of reminded me of lamar jackson a couple weeks ago i felt like he couldn't stay on his feet he was slipping so much on grass so there is there is a difference there the you know there's so many interesting things that are coming out with this debate of of turf and grass and one of the fascinating things that i find is that like the really trusted research studies like i'm talking about the you know uh journal of american sports medicine they even find not only across football but across all sports that there's a higher rate of ankle and knee injuries on turf um but the nfl comes out and they did this big push towards well it's not necessarily statistically different because in 2021 there wasn't a huge increase or difference between turf and grass so they mark that year and they're you know, blowing that out in in their studies and their articles saying, well, there's not really a big difference, but just the following year, there was a major difference between injuries on turf and grass. So I'm kind of now like seeing what the NFLPA is putting out there and they're kind of doing more long-term research. And another study basically said that there is a 16% more chance of injuries on turf than there is grass. So the NFLPA is kind of diving in a little bit deeper. So I'm interested to see what kind of comes out from all of this. And is the general theory that it's it's that stickiness, the fact that your your foot, your cleat is going to get caught more on turf than it is on grass that is supposed to be causing the more injuries or is it the hardness 
under the surface that is the issue or a combination of all of it? I think it's more towards like the stickiness and the lack of give. So in order to define something through the NFL Association and the NFLPA, they define an, a turf-related or surf-related, surface-related injury as a non-contact lower extremity injury. Right. So ACL tears that happen because of somebody getting hit below the waist, that doesn't count. But when you break it down like that, where it's non-contact, normally what ends up happening is the player's foot will stick and then their upper knee or their calf or something like that has too much pressure applied to it and then they have a tear or they have a sprain. And that's where you start to see some of these injuries increase on turf versus grass. Because you would think like um, it's almost counterintuitive in that when you're sort of thinking of non-contact injuries in particular, you would think like the, the times where you slip would be when something could go wrong, right? Mm -hmm. You slip, you roll an ankle or you slip and your knee is in a weird joint, uh, weird angle when weight goes through it but actually it's it's the reverse it's the time where it sticks unusually yep and weight goes through it that where causes you would more problems exactly where you'd almost want a little bit more give under your foot to kind of absorb that shock and i just i just find it funny because even you know i'm not the biggest soccer fan but the world cup being played in the united states when they come out and say they refuse for their players mm -hmm. to play on turf they have to play on a hybrid field I mean, that's a industry in itself that does enormous amounts of study for injuries, and they're even claiming that they want, you know, artificial, you know, hybrid turf, kind of like what uh, Lambeau Field has, yeah. right? They have the artificial grass and turf combination. Well, they're usually lower on the injury list when it comes to their playing surface, and you know, they kind of are that team that or that stadium that takes out the excuse of like, well, we can't grow grass anywhere. Well. In Lambeau Field, you're playing a negative 10 and you're playing at 100 <laughs> degrees, so I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, okay, let's hit a couple of uh, injury players before yeah. we uh, wrap this up. Jonathan Taylor is going to have thumb surgery, mm -hmm. which is the latest in a, a spate of thumb injuries randomly this year. Right, yeah. Jeez, Achilles Stafford. and thumbs, apparently, are the two, <laughs> so, the two things this year. Yeah, that's, a, that's just the, you know, the big trend right now. So uh, the UCL injury, that's the same injury that affected Justin Fields and affected Matthew Stafford. Fields had a dislocation with it. Stafford and Jonathan Taylor did not. But this UCL is that ligament that basically crosses from the thumb to the uh, index finger. And with surgery there, they're basically going to pin that ligament back in. It's going to be two to three weeks. Um, you know, and interesting enough, like I'm not worried about him holding the ball. I'm not really worried about that. I'm worried about him catching and pass blocking because those are the times where he's going to like have his thumb extended backward and really stress that ligament. So You're picking up a blitz with that. Oh yeah. Right. So fun. I do wonder if they're even just going to splint him. Um, a lot of times they do like an external brace where like they just allow that, that thumb to just move forward, but not backward at all. So I wouldn't be surprised if he comes out with that, but it's going to be a couple weeks. Yeah. Um, couple other players to touch on. Chris Olave mm -hmm. left the game last week with a concussion. Yep. Are we now in this world where if you leave a game with a concussion, you're almost certainly out the next week? Yeah, it's interesting because the, the, the rate right now is 16 days. 16 days is the average time people miss for a concussion. And that's but, not like mandated. That's just where we're ending up at this point. Mm -hmm. Like they seem yeah. to have, they seem to be, I don't know if it's deliberate or if it's just the way the protocol is working out, but it's gone from... You know, theoretically, you could come back, you know, four or five days later and be good next week. Now we're we are I, I, we talked about this, I think, almost way back at the start when we were doing this, that rugby mandated like a 14 day stand down wow. after a bunch of yeah. a bunch of like same week yeah. returns happened. They were like, this is crazy. You're going to have to stand down for two weeks. And the NFL hasn't mandated it, but they seem to be ending up in the same in more or less the same place. Right. Sam, do you think that like players with concussions now? are more honest about their symptoms especially after seeing like what happened with Tua and some of these you know earlier retirements because of concussion like first name comes to mind is like Luke Keekley but like do you think that they're just being more honest with their symptoms and they have to pass protocol based off of their symptoms and they're telling the truth about it um I mean I think they definitely they would self-report now in a way that probably didn't used to happen right. like you know particularly like the next day the ones where they play on in the game or they get tested and they're still good and they they go back and then on monday they go in the concussion protocol 
like those are the ones where they're self-reporting mm -hmm. that probably never used to happen you're right? seeing where, that now more than ever yeah too. yeah and, and th so those are the ones i think that are legit um I, but i think the the i doubt it's that you know as things go on they're sort of uh being more honest about the the return to play type of stuff i think it's just that like there has i i i'm sure they could be on the field earlier, but I, I'm sure they're being held out like deliberately beyond that first game back after the Tua stuff. Right, and I I do think that this is a dynamic that I kind of overlooked when they started talking about head injuries and CTEs and and concussion symptoms that can really affect players. A lot of that was targeted to like you know fans and safety of the NFL and ownership. But really, it's hitting home with the players as well, and that exposure is really I think getting to the players to understand like this is not something to mess with. Like I'm, if I have symptoms of a concussion the day after I'm going to report it, I'm not going to just try to play through practice. So, yeah. I mean, I think, I think that whole Tua dynamic last year, like shifted everything. Like the NFL had a pretty close glimpse of like the worst case scenario of all this. It was all abstract before that. Right. Yep. And this, I think every sport deals with this, that it's, you kind of know, but the human brain is very good at cognitive dissonance, like just dismissing information that you're not that interested in bringing on board. Uh -huh. um, so you sort of know, yeah, if I take this hit, CTE down the line, whatever, but it's, you know, I need to play this week. Whereas last year you got this look of what can go wrong if you mess around with it and you don't take it as seriously as you can. Um, I think other sports have sort of stepped in and done something before it got to that. Yep. The NFL got to look at what it would look like and I think that shifted everything, like yeah. both how they treat it, how players treat it. I think the whole thing shifted off the back of Tua's injuries. 100% agree. That mental image really was ingrained into a lot of people watching that game. So I think it definitely is stuck. Um, one last guy to hit on the way out. Keenan Allen uh, yeah. is still out of practice now for uh, a while with quad injury. Yeah. Um, obviously for the Chargers, this is potentially catastrophic because he's <laughs> like the only receiver oh left God. standing that's yeah. been producing for them. Yeah. And it's a soft tissue injury, which is immediately worrisome. Yeah, it's a soft tissue quad. Uh, you know, you, you're seeing after return from a quad injury, about a 26% decrease in productivity and snap rate. So he played 98% of snaps last week. And you're telling an injured quad to go out there and try to do 98% again on a three hour game. It's going to be tough for him to come back and be a full. But uh, you also wonder at what point is the, are the Chargers looking at their lineup and saying, hey, man, we need you. Even like a, a gimpy, you know, Keenan Allen is probably better than some of their other options. So Yeah, I mean, it, they, they've been in trouble with Keenan Allen as their number one, like, only receiving option. If they suddenly have to go into a game without him there at all, it's – I don't even know what they're going to do at that point. Well, I mean, even if they throw the ball to Quentin <clears throat> Johnson, it doesn't work out well for him. Right. So. Um, anyone else you want to hit on the way out? Uh, no, I think that, you know, for the past two weeks, even through the Thanksgiving Day uh, break that we had, there wasn't any huge significant injuries other than like Jalen Phillips. So I, I do think that we kind of dodged a couple bullets on that one. All right. Well, that'll do it for uh, this week's Boo Boo Breakdown, our return. And that'll do it for the PFF NFL podcast this week. So thank you all for listening. And we will talk to you again next week.